Welcome to the Pearl of Great Price. Thanks for joining us today. It's the 10th of April and on this day in Christian history, we're going to be looking at the Salvation Army and their founder, William Booth. We go back to the year 1829 and we travel to Nottingham when he was born. Booth's father was relatively wealthy, but during William's childhood, the family descended into poverty and he could no longer afford his school fees. So he was apprenticed to a pawnbroker. This traumatic experience of poverty would drive his life's work. His best friend, Will Sampson, was a big influence on him at that age. And together they would go to the Methodist Chapel in Broad Street. And in 1844, he had a conversion experience, noting that it was in the open street of Nottingham that this great change passed over me. Two years later, a preacher from Scarborough made a deep impression on him. And he started to prepare himself for a ministry of preaching, reading extensively and training himself in writing. He became a Methodist local preacher and he delivered his first sermon in Kid Street, forming a partnership with his friend, Will Sampson. It suddenly came to an end when he sadly died of tuberculosis. This was a sign of how poverty and the short life expectancy were common in Victorian Britain. Booth resigned as a lay preacher and he took to open a uh, evangelising in London on Kennington Common and soon became a full-time preacher at Binfield Chapel in Clapham. Just over a month after he had started full-time preaching, he became engaged to Catherine Mumford. Now a prominent Methodist evangelist, he was often in demand, but he was beginning to feel constrained by the structures that he felt were being imposed on him. He wanted to spend more time evangelising, but was being pushed in a more pastoral direction. In frustration, he resigned from ministry and was soon barred from campaigning in Methodist congregations. He became an independent evangelist and set up an in a tent in an old Quaker burial ground in Whitechapel. Now in his early 40s, Booth and his wife Catherine opened the Christian Revival Society in the East End of London, which later became the East London Christian Mission. His resourcefulness and resilience came to the fore during the slow growth of his mission, and his wife wrote that he would stumble home night after night, haggard with fatigue. Often his clothes were torn and bloody bandages swathed his head where a stone had struck. Evening meetings were held in an old warehouse where sometimes urchins threw stones and fireworks through the window. As well as fearless preaching, this may also be an indication of his uncompromising style which alienated as many as he attracted. 
In May 1878, he was dictating a letter to his secretary, George Scott Railton, who said to him, We are a volunteer army. Booth replied in indignation, I'm no volunteer, I'm a regular. Railton was instructed to cross out the word volunteer and substitute the word salvation. Hence, the Salvation Army was born. They were modelled after the military with their own flag or colours and their own music, often compared, often composed with Christian words to popular tunes that were more usually sung in the pubs, most famously Onwards Christian Soldiers. This subversion of a popular pub pastime was deliberate and effective, but also provocative. In England by the 1860s, widespread industrialisation had meant that more people were living in urban rather than rural areas for the first time, and there was a significant drop in the quality of life for many people. Casual and unskilled workers often struggled to find employment, while missing out on the fresher air and the better food of the countryside. Housing was often overcrowded and unsanitary. And hand-in-hand with industrialisation came life-changing and terrible workplace accidents, with little hope of recovery and no social support. In this harsh environment, beer and gin were cheap and easily available and numbed reality and provided a much-craved pick-me-up. William Booth would wear the army's own uniform, putting on the armour for meetings and ministry work. His Salvationists also wore uniforms and they carried banners, and along with their holier-than-thou attitude, they proved to be extremely irritating to many ordinary people. It was abrasive to both the Christian establishment and many of those that they were preaching to. Booth became the general, and his other ministers were given appropriate ranks as officers. Other members became soldiers. And after a few years, the church was established in other countries, notably the United States, France, Switzerland, Sweden, and also in the diaspora, the British Empire, Australia, Canada, India, Cape Colony, New Zealand, Jamaica. During his lifetime, William Booth established army work in 58 countries and colonies, travelling extensively and holding salvation meetings. His book, Darkest England and the Way Out, was reprinted several times, most recently in 2006. He proposed a strategy to apply the Christian gospel and work ethic to widespread social problems. The book represents an inspired and an ambitious vision of abolishing vice and poverty by establishing homes for the homeless, farm communities such as Hadley Farm, where the urban poor could be trained in agriculture, training centres for prospective emigrants, homes for fallen women and released prisoners. 
aid for the poor, and help for drunkards. Booth also laid down schemes for poor men lawyers, banks, clinics, industrial schools, and even a seaside resort. He says that if the state fails to meet its social obligations, it will be the task of each Christian to step into the breach. The ethical characteristic of William Booth's business ventures were evident in the manufacture of boxes of Salvation Army matches, which bore the slogan, Lights in Darkest England, Security from Fire, Fair Wages for Fair Work. And his match factory in old, on Old Ford paid four pence a gross, while the larger firms only paid two and a half pence. The Salvation Army was a growing force, and they were not easy to ignore. Bold and brash, they marched in processions, banging drums, flying banners, singing loudly and playing instruments. In this context, some could see them as a revolutionary force. The strongest opposition to their activities came from the drinks industry, who were concerned that their activities would lead to less drinking. A skeleton army was formed in southern England that opposed and disrupted the Salvation Army's marches against alcohol. Salvation bands were drowned out by a cacophony of whistles, horns and drums wielded by skeletons, who sang their own songs, often with obscene or threatening lyrics. Clashes between the two groups led to the death of several Salvationists, and injuries to many others. A young woman, Susanna Beatty, newly married, was knocked to the ground in the seaside town of Hastings, felled by a thrown rock and set upon by the mob. She lost an eye. And later in hospital, she died from internal injuries. It was 1889, and she became the Salvation Army's first martyr. The tail end of the 19th century saw towns across the south of England descend into violence. Dead animals some set alight were hurled at passing Salvationists, as were sticks, stones, paint-filled eggs, burning coals and rotten fish. Chamber pots were emptied from upper windows over the heads of men and women below. Thousands of people were injured. And the police would rarely intervene, and when they did, the Salvation Army's unpopular militant manner meant that they were just as if not more likely to fall foul of the police's attention. Some, even in positions of authority such as the Mayor of Eastbourne, joined Brewers and other supporters by publicly endorsing the actions of the Skeleton Army. In Torquay, hundreds of Salvationists were assaulted, and the local council responded by adding a clause, which was later repealed by Parliament, to the Torquay Harbour and District Act to arrest and imprison Salvationists. Mass brawls broke out in 67 towns and villages. But after a few tumultuous years, the anti-Salvationist frenzy died down. 
and police became more amenable to arresting the skeletons. And the Salvation Army's right to promenade in public was enshrined in law, and the skeleton army faded away. William Boo's strong character and determination and patriarchal nature also created many enemies from within. Accused of nepotism for appointing his own children to posts for which others were better qualified, such as his daughter Emma Booth as the principal of the officer's training home when she was only 19. The press was often hostile to Booth, betraying him as a charlatan, only out to make money. And the Church of England at first was also extremely hostile, with the politician and evangelist Lord Shaftesbury going so far as to describe Booth is the Antichrist. Many found him dictatorial and hard to work with, and even some of his own children denounced him. However, in his later years, he was received in audience by kings and presidents, many of whom were among his ardent admirers. He was made a freeman of the City of London and he was granted an honorary degree from the University of Oxford. At last, the establishment seemed to embrace him. When he died at the age of 83, his body lay in state for three days at Clapton Congress Hall, where 150,000 people filed past his casket. His funeral service was held at London's Olympia, where 40,000 people attended including Queen Mary, who almost unrecognised sat far to the rear of the Great Hall. King George V wrote to his daughter, The nation has lost the great organiser, and the poor are wholehearted and sincere friends. United States President William Taft wrote, whose long life and great talents were dedicated to the noble work of helping the poor and weak and giving them another chance to attain success and happiness. But maybe the ultimate honour, and the most ironic, was when One Mile End, a brewery from East London, created a craft beer called Salvation Pale Ale. The beer is sold in a couple of pubs, including the White Hart Brew Pub, only a few metres away from the statue of William Booth on Marland Road. That's all from the Pearl of Great Vice today. I hope you enjoyed listening. Please subscribe and leave a comment on the blog if you have time. And join us tomorrow if you can, as we look at the papal encyclical Pacem Enteris, which was promulgated two months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you want to visit the blog or commission a podcast for your own organisation, visit the website for more information at www.pogp.net. And if you'd like to respond directly, then email the show on pogppod.gmail.com. Have a lovely day wherever you are, and thanks for listening.